Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. We are at the start of another week, and we have a new Speaker of the House who can only be described as a white Christian nationalist who thinks the Bible, not the Constitution, is his guide to governance. This is dangerous. This is anti-constitutional. This is un-American. But that is what the Republican Party is these days. And our guest today is going to talk about this. It's interesting that at a time that our attention is very much in foreign policy because of events in Ukraine, events in Israel, that we still are in a crisis here at home, a crisis of democracy. And in 20 some odd days, the spending is going to run out. We're going to be faced with another government shutdown. The Republicans, who for reasons that really are inexplicable other than in their attachment to authoritarian thugs, want to separate aid from Israel and from aid to Ukraine so they can dump the latter. And we maintain a position in which every election in America is now a matter of do or die. Every election is, are we going to have democracy or are we going to have a bunch of authoritarian thugs running the show? And until the Republican Party fundamentally changes, every election is going to be this way. I would like to think that Democrats will win every election for now because they are the party of democracy. But of course, that's impossible. And even when they win, of course, Republicans don't necessarily recognize that they've won. So you can't have a governing body. You can't have a Congress. You can't have an effective executive. If one party is continually agitating for nihilism, for authoritarianism, you got to solve this problem. And I would like to think the Republicans are ready to step away from Trump and Trumpism, but there is no sign, zero sign, they are ready to do that. And our guest today, Stuart Stevens, is the perfect person to explain this to us. Stuart, like I was, was Republican for many years. He was a consultant, the senior strategist to the Mitt Romney campaign. But once Donald Trump was elected, uh, the wool was pulled from his eyes, as it was for me. And he realized that the party of his adulthood was a fraud. Um, he wrote a book about it. Um, it was all a lie. He's written another book, uh, The Conspiracy to End America. And he's one of the most insightful people when it comes to explaining how we got to where we are, who these people are, and perhaps how we go forward. He is also a delightful storyteller, a travel writer, which thrills me since I love travel, uh, and we're delighted to have him on the show. So without further ado, Stuart Stevens, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me to the party. It's great to be here. 
I feel like I'm talking to my alter ego because we have both been on this same journey. I think I got to know Stuart Pest during the Romney campaign when he was the chief strategist. We lost. Yes, uh, and I must say, I I must say that I took that loss very hard because I thought Mitt Romney, and I still think, really is an extraordinary person who would have been a very good president. How how shocked were you when you lost? Did you know it was coming? Did you kind of sense it? Oh, you you know, uh, being an incumbent president is incredibly difficult, Um, particularly when you're not in the federal funding system. And people, you know, who kind of have a normal life, God love them, don't really get this, you know, but in 1976, we went to federal funding yeah. for presidential campaigns, for the general, which meant that each candidate got the same amount of money. Literally, when you walked off stage after accepting the nomination, there was somebody there from the Treasury Department, and if you had gotten into the system, accepted the rules, which were, if you take this money, you won't raise or spend any more money. And there'd be someone there from the Treasury Department that'd have a check. It's around 80 million. It went up with, we would always say like, can you wire this? And they go, no, no, we do checks. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, uh, you know, Obama stepped out of that system in 2008. So once anybody gets out of the system, everybody gets out. So 2012 was the first time that an incumbent president and the challenger uh, had not been in the federal funding system since um, Nixon McGovern. Wow. So it's fair to ask, when's the last time an incumbent president lost uh, who was not in the federal funding system? Because the federal funding system leveled the playing field. Right. Both candidates had the same amount. So Carter lost, Bush lost. Well, the answer to that is the last candidate to lose like that was Herbert Hoover. Oh, my. And, you know, he had a bad year. Um, <laughs> to put it mildly. So, um, you know, I always looked at it as very, very difficult. Um, but every time I've ever worked in a campaign where we beat an incumbent, and I did a lot of races like that, my experience has been at the end, you had to sort of control the dialogue, kind of like an NBA game. You had to have the ball at the end. And once Hurricane Sandy hit, um, it really took away any ability we had to control a dialogue. I mean, we went from you know, having these sweeping rallies around the country to sitting in a hotel room watching the president do a good job as the president. Um, so now whenever you have this discussion, somebody says, well, do you think you were going to win before that? And we really didn't. I mean, you'd be foolish to go into a, a tight race like that. Um, but any sense I had that we might be able to pull this off, kind of drifted away during that. Now, it's not to say in an alternative universe we wouldn't have lost more without Sandy. I mean, you know, we could have gone out Thursday night and Mick could have said something and, you know, we could have lost by 10 points. Who knows? You know, there's no alternative universe. Um, But um, I I didn't go into that night expecting um, to win. you know, I, I find it fascinating, uh, and McKay Coppins gets into this some in his book, you know, um, that the party that would nominate Mitt Romney would nominate Donald Trump. Exactly. It, it's, sort of, it's sort of mind-boggling. Um, and and let, let's talk about that transition. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about McKay's book, which is extraordinary. 
But do you think the party fundamentally changed in those years? Or do you think there was some kind of balance that finally tipped in the direction of the crazies, of the national populists? How do you look upon that transition from 2012 to 2016? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, when when Mitt was working with McKay, he gave him all these emails. He really did. He <laughs> bared his soul. I mean, it's extraordinary. I, 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 you know, um, just as I hate to read anything I've written, go back and read it, you know, I, I, I haven't gone back and looked at any of these emails, God knows, from the campaign. But there is an email he has in there from me from 2011 where we're discussing sort of the campaign to come, the primary. And I make this point that um, the Republican Party has become increasingly evangelical, Southern, and populist. Right. Mitt Romney is a Yankee, wealthy Mormon. And I say to him, we're going to have to steal this election, which now kind of has a different time. Yes, right, right. <laughs> at the time, I mean, you know, that this is not going to come to us um, if the party just does what the party would naturally do. Um, and if you look at someone like George Bush, who I'd worked for previously, you could say, okay, the party's going to, you know, big state governor, he's a Bush. Um, even with John McCain, John McCain was a bio candidate and a bio that was comfortable with the history of the party. Um, so, uh, now we were blessed by the weak field, um, but people forget, you know, like Rick Perry, he should have been a really good candidate. And I think he could have been a good candidate. And that Mitt really took him on. Mitt was very strong in these things. He would take on candidates. You know, he, he sort of disassembled uh, Rick Perry in his first debate. He, it's after uh, Newt won South Carolina, Mitt disassembled him in a Florida debate. Um, but it was always uh, an awkward fit. For the party. And what's fascinating to me, Jen, is, you know, and then once we got in the general election, you could look at polling and see this group of disaffected, lower frequency white voters. And they could have cared less about what we were talking about. You know, Russia, lower taxes, cutting government, more. They go, like, dude, we don't care. But if you talk to them about race, Muslims, xenophobia, anger, grievance, that would have motivated them. Now, people have a much better sense of Mitt Romney now, I think, than they did then. It's hard to, it's hard to get a sense of anybody in a campaign, to be honest. Um, I mean, I'm sure the people who worked for John Kerry felt that the real John Kerry never came across in that campaign. Um, but, you know, if you walked into Mitt Romney's office and suggested this, you would have left without a job. Right. So it was never even discussed in our campaign. But I would have bet at the time, just as like a guy working in politics, that if you went that way, whatever you gained, you would lose at the upper end of the better educated Republican voters. And that's what was happening in 2016 with Trump right up into the Comey letter. And then he got just enough of those. Um, and those are the voters that came, that left Trump and came to Biden, which usually happens in campaigns, the last to join for the first to leave, yeah. which makes sense. You have the most doubts, you know. Um, 
But it's, it's, you know, I think it's a fascinating sort of historical question. Um, what would the party have been like, the same voters, if Mitt Romney had been elected president? And he would have led the party in a very different direction. And, you know, I think about this a lot in the context of like, why didn't America in the 30s become fascist? When there was so much fascism in the country, and then, of course, sweeping Europe and and probably it's because FDR was president, not Lindbergh or Henry Ford. And, and maybe it goes back to this lesson we used to study when we still had civics classes, that leadership matters. Yeah, it and, does. you know, Mitt would have led the party in a very different direction. Um, he certainly would have led our foreign policy in a different direction. Um, and I, I think there's a good case to be made that what's happening in Ukraine would not be happening. Um, Right. But it, there was a emerging white grievance in the party that was very apparent in the 2012 primary. Um, And ultimately, you know, I'm of the belief that ultimately, in many ways, this is all about race. Absolutely. I agree entirely. It has nothing to do with economics. This is about <laughs> economics. This is the original sin of race that we've never dealt with. And you have a freak out of primarily white Christians who are no longer the dominant demographic in the country. And having a and black president. Uh, right. And coupled with a black president, which completely freaked them out, you now have this kind of insane nationalistic party that looks like one of the right-wing European parties, not the Republican Party. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I wrote about it, you know, when I wrote this first book, it was all a lie. I mean, it, it's really hard to find anybody in 2016 who was more wrong about Trump than me. I didn't even go <laughs> oh. to primary. Yes, <laughs> me too. I was well, with you, I, I'm sure I was more wrong, Jeff. We're going to get into that conversation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I famously said, in part to be provocative, that, you know, Trump wouldn't win any primaries. So how did that work out? Yeah. Um, and then after, I, I had a lot of friends that said, you know, Trump had hijacked the party. And I wanted to believe that, but I kept bumping up against the thing like, you know, hijackers are not popular on the plane. Yes. Like nobody is, you know, we were going to go to grandma's house, but now we're going to Cuba. This is great. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Cuba. Thank God this man hijacked the plane, you know. That doesn't happen. It's like, I wanted to go to grandma's house. Um, so, I, you know, in that kind of high school English teacher way that if you can't write it, you don't understand it. I started to just kind of try to figure out for myself and that, I didn't plan to write a book and that evolved into, uh, it it was all a lie. And what really struck me was that the party had two, they've been in the post-World War II party, there really been two separate parties. One in Eisenhower party, saying, governing, boring. And uh, McCarthy, Joe McCarthy party, xenophobic, paranoid, conspiratorial, often racist, non-governing. And, you know, if you look at those of us who worked for Bush in 99, you know, 2000 campaign, that whole concept that was trying to be evolved of compassionate conservatism was trying to address what do you do in a world in which the party has been based upon ending uh, the Cold War, which, okay, it's over. It had been ended on crime, based on crime. Crime had plummeted in the, in the 90s. Um, welfare, it was Bill Clinton that said, end the welfare as we know it. 
So all of these issues that had driven the party, you could say, okay, you won. And what are you going to construct something new? And that's really what Bush was about. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a fascinating little parlor game among a lot of us who work for Bush. Um, what would Bush have been like if he wasn't a, a, a wartime president? And, you know, if you look at what was his first major piece of legislation before 9-11, really his only major piece, and it was No Child Left Behind. Yeah. And you can argue about whether or not that was good or bad. But, you know, there's that famous picture where he's signing No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder, which now would be presented like in a war crimes tribunal. We have evidence. We have ladies and gentlemen in front of the jury. I have proof that, you know. Um, and that's just how Bush was. You know, he came out of being governor of Texas when, you know, te Democrats are still powerful in Texas. His mentor was a Democratic lieutenant governor, Bob Bullock. Um, and it's just naturally the way Bush is wired. He's not an angry guy. Yeah. Um, he wants to like people, and people want to like George Bush. Um, but, you know, so to go back to those schism in the party, so 1956, Eisenhower gets 39% of the black vote. Yeah. Nixon got 33. We forget this, you know. J Jackie Robertson, Will Chamberlain, they campaigned for Nixon. Right. So then it drops to 7% for uh, Goldwater. 64. So, you know, you could have made a case. I probably would have made a case if I wasn't like seven years old um, that African-Americans would come back to the party in some numbers once the civil rights bill was passed because of shared values of faith, patriotism, entrepreneurship, um, cultural conservatism. But that didn't happen. So Trump gets 8% of the African-American vote. So that's one point every 56 years. So, you, you know, I'm from Mississippi, but still, I can do that math. And that's yeah. going to take a while. Right. And so, you know, in, in this world, we failed at this. Absolutely. And what happened, of course, after Goldwater, is that the parties in the South reversed. Yes. That the white segregationist, um, racist folks became Republicans. Democrats. That, they were all uh, Democrats. Right. They, they were Democrats. They became Republicans. People who were in favor of the New South, people who were more progressive, they became Democrats. So you had this complete role reversal. What surprises me still, and maybe this is the old adage that change happens um, slowly and then all at once, is how kind of the bottom fell out as soon as Trump was elected. You and I knew all these people. We knew the Paul Ryans. We knew the Mitch McConnells. For whatever, you know, faults they had, these were sane kind of grown-ups. Yeah. And I think what you and I experienced was this kind of appalling shock. It was like the body snatchers. You looked around and whoop, there goes one of them. Whoop, there goes another one. And they all just fell in and they all became enablers. Is that kind of inevitable? Was that, uh, listen, how did you I, that? I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had over this uh, because, you know, I helped elect a lot of these people. Yeah. yeah. And Ted, Co Ted Cochran. You know. I never would have thought that 
they would ever support Trump. Yeah. I, I never, I never, I would have bet anything. Um, and I was wrong. And, you know, if you go back to after 12, the party went through that so-called autopsy of analyzing why is it we haven't won the popular vote except once in 2004, since 88. Um, I worked in that Bush campaign in 2004. And one thing you say about us in Bush world, we never thought we had it figured out. We knew how lucky we were. I mean, if 60,000 people in Ohio changed their votes, we would have lost. So yeah. I mean, we didn't feel like, oh, man, we got this. Um, but, um, and what were the conclusions of that so-called autopsy? You know, pretty basic, but it's good to say these things. The party needed to appeal to more non-white voters, more women, particularly those who didn't work at home, um, uh, younger voters. Um, and yet then, and this was presented not only as a political necessity, but as a moral argument. That if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, changing, cacophonous, loud, contradictory country, you need to be more like that. You need to be more like America. And then when Trump came along, there was almost like this audible sigh of relief, like, thank God we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. We can yeah, just win exactly. with white people. Um, exactly. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a historic tragedy. Um, I mean, in Bush world, we at least admitted that we failed, which I think does matter. You know, Ken Melman, who was chairman of the party, went in front of the NAACP in 2005 and uh, apologized for the sudden. Right. And so you had these kind of forces that the party had basically since 1964 only appealed to white voters. And you get good at what you do. You're selling to that one market. Um, and... If you look at Ronald Reagan in 1980, sweeping landslide with 55% of the white vote. You go to 2008, John McCain loses a not particularly close race with 58% of the white vote. And that really is you know, the fastest growing, the fastest declining major demographic in America are non-college educated white voters. They were 60% in Reagan. Now they're 39%. Um, you know, Trump's coalition was 85% white in a country that's 60%, and since we've been talking, less so white. Um, you know, we're going to become a minority-majority country. Those 16 years and younger, younger are our, our non-white majority. Right. Odds are really good they're going to be non-white when they turn 18. And, you know... Um, that's, that's the terrible demographic um, fear that the Republicans have. And instead of doing the work that was necessary to appeal to these voters, we never did that. Right. And we never had the policy. You know, we just never did the, you know, we would stumble around with, we're going to have entitlement zones. And, but we never figured it out. Um, and then when Trump came along, he was able to maximize that white vote. Though, you know, Trump won with 46.2%. Romney lost with 47.2%. So the third party aspect played, you know, it wasn't like Trump appealed to a, a larger no. majority. No. He never broke 47%. Um, in 2020, he got 46.9%. Um but it, I think that Trump gave people's 
Obviously, you know, Trump didn't make people more racist, but he made it okay to be racist. Absolutely. He opened the Pandora's box. He gave people a permission structure. And, and, you know, I sometimes think that a really fateful turning point was when George W. Bush failed at immigration reform. You know, Mm -hmm. it had cleared the Senate, people forget, by a very wide margin. And then it died in the House. And it had that passed, had the Republican Party become a welcoming pro-immigration party, the way Ronald Reagan was. He was, you know, remember the 1982 Immigration Act. I, I do think they would have embraced a part of the electorate that they would have had to then cater to. They would have had to have paid attention. And when that failed, when Paul mm-hmm. Ryan lost his nerve and that died, that was kind of sort of a last no, I, I, think I don't think we talk about that enough. I think that is a really, really smart point. I mean, if you want to you know, have your mind blown, you know, if you go on YouTube, you can find a 1980 primary debate in Texas between Reagan and Bush, in which they're basically arguing who's more liberal on immigration. Right, right. That's the fight. I mean, you look at this and you think, like, you're having an out-of-body experience, you know. Right. And Reagan announced for the general election in 80 in front of the Statue of Liberty. His, the piece of legislation he signed made everyone who was in the country before 1983 legal. Um, his last speech as president was an ode to immigration. Um, it's not to say there wasn't a dark side to Reagan. And, and you know, I, I, that's been sort of a reckoning for me, um, for me personally, because I was a big yes. Reagan guy. And I, I always said this stuff wasn't ra- racist, but there were elements there that he definitely, you have to be intellectually honest, played to. Um, and, it, you know, the party just, has, once that happened, I mean, the reason I wrote this book was, I never, so, so you go to October 20, I can remember vividly, I was working on the Lincoln Project, uh, you know, been up for like two nights making spots, and then I was looking at all this data from these states, and I'd worked a lot in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona. And you could see, okay, Trump is going to lose. And I just remember feeling this sense of relief, like I can quit doing this. Yeah. My sins are atoned. <laughs> you know, I have, you know, um, and I never would have believed even then, after everything we'd seen, that all these good Republicans who we know, that if Trump lost by seven and a half million north of 300 electoral votes, that they wouldn't say Trump lost. Yeah. I mean, how do you walk out of the Super Bowl and argue about the score? Yeah. I mean, you could say, uh, we should have won, you know, bad call by the ref, you know, whatever. But the score is the score, dude. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, and... It just became increasingly clear how that the party had reached a point where democracy had become not the mechanism, the process by which they could lead the country. It became an enemy. Correct. Because if you don't have a message and you don't have a dem- demography that can win a majority, you have to make a decision. Do you change or do you try to win as uh, the tyranny of the minority? Exactly. By curating the vote. And that's why I wrote this book, uh, Conspiracy in America, because, you know, I think that we, t- 
it just struck me, you know, reading a lot about how democracy falls into autocracy, which is not an obscure subject in this. No, it's very popular now. Actually, great books being written. Yes, I mean the the Ruth Ben Giats of the world. You know, phenomenal, phenomenal. And it's just Jane Mercer. It's just brilliant work on this. You know, Timothy Snyder. um, That there are always these five elements that were present, and that. I mean, the reason I wrote this book is it seems to me we talk about these five individually, but we don't talk about them and their impact collectively. And, and the five were um, support of a major party, which God knows Republicans have. I mean, believe me, you watch this. You, the viciousness of the platform fights we used to have, right? which maybe didn't mean anything. Maybe they were kind of like, you know, faculty meeting fights about parking, but yeah. they were vicious to the people involved in them. And now we just say, no, we're not going to do this. The 20 platforms, basically whatever Trump wants. Right. I, you're like, mind boggling. Yeah. So then you have to have support of the major party. You have to have financiers. They have that out the wazoo, you know, people, whomever. You have to have propagandists, which we certainly have. You have to have shock troops, which we certainly have seen. And you need, and this is really, I think, probably the most critical, a changing legal system that justifies what you're doing. So that if you can, Georgia can pass a law that it can overturn the result of a popular vote, when they do it, can't say it's illegal. Um, And that all of those have come into play now. And, you know, there's all these buffoonish people over there on the other side, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gates, the Lauren Boparts. But I think in a way that almost helps them. Yeah. Because it's easy to dismiss it as a buffoonish movement or group of people. When in fact, this is a very, very serious group of serious human beings. They're well organized, they're incredibly well funded, and they're very patient. And, you know, the parallels of what happened with the Federalist Society. So here's this thing it starts in 1984, I think it was little weekend retreat at Yale with some benign title like you know, the future of the conservative judiciary. <laughs> right. And out of that grows the Federalist Society. And it's hard to look around today and say they didn't win. Yeah. So the guy who runs the Federalist Society for a long time, Leonard Leo, he now, he was given $1.6 billion in the largest political contribution ever. The way it was done was through this trust so they didn't have to pay many taxes on this 1.6. So what is they doing? A lot of that $1.6 billion is now going to these various organizations that are about the business of changing how we vote in America. And it's amazing to me um, that we don't write, talk about this more, but they very much do this under the radar screen. Cleta Mitchell, who's this lawyer who at one time was a very sane human being, Hi. she led the efforts of, uh, for the ERA in Oklahoma, where she was a state legislature. Um, you know, fast forward to 2020, and she's sitting in Trump's office when he makes the, the infamous call to Raffensperger. Yeah. And, you know, at some point, she basically picks it. She's frustrated that Trump isn't explaining it well enough. She picks up the phone. This is really what he means. I can't believe she wasn't indicted. I just got a wonder. She's the only one, really, isn't she? Uh, All the other lawyers took a fall and, like, why not her? Why not Cleta Mitchell? Yeah, that bothers me. Like, you know. Right. um, But 
you know, she she goes around the country giving these seminars that are about helping elect people who are involved in the electoral process. You know, Secretary of State's at the top of the, the list, um, but other uh, smaller state, local officials, recruiting volunteers, they go about this business. Um, and these meetings are supposed to be hidden from the press, but of course nothing is hidden these days. And the recordings have emerged, the way people record things now from these. And one of her standard opening lines to this, these seminars she has is, anytime, I'm paraphrasing it, but I have the exact quote in the book, anytime somebody has d democratic or d democracy in their description, they are not our friends. <laughs> so, yeah, like, quite the confession. Okay. okay. Right. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. And it's why they're in love with Viktor Orban in Hungary. Exactly. These are their idols. These are what they want. This is their model. And, you know, it's foolish to say that they can't win. Yeah. There's another element that we have seen play out again and again, which is Christian conservatives, business, they kind of cut deals with these autocratic figures. Well, we'll kind of go along because yes. we're in it for the tax cuts. Well, we're in it because we're really in it for the abortion. And it's pernicious because pretty soon, whether they get what they want or not, they've whittled away democracy. And you've dealt with the Main Street Republicans a long time and the business community. How do you get them to see that they have a stake in democracy, not just tax cuts and deregulation? I've gone around and around on this. How do you get them to realize they've got skin in the game? I, it is a fascinating, really super important question. Um, so, you know, I write about this, this book. A lot of them said, okay, we're not going to give money after, you know, January 7th to people who voted not to certify the election. Right. Some held to that, some didn't. But then all of them gave money to the Republican Congressional Committee, which then gave money to these candidates. Yes, right. They just laundered the money. Or they gave it to the Senatorial Committee, which gives to, you know, Ted Cruz and these people who voted against it. And what I don't get is exactly what you're saying. Okay, let me just ask you something. Do you want to be a CEO in Russia? Yeah. Or America? I mean, you got a pretty good deal here, right? And it's the same with these vastly wealthy people. Right. It's just Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, the Koch brothers. Right? Only in America could they have amassed the wealth that they have right. and the power. And how do they react to that? They want to change the system. Yeah. Fundamentally, they want to change it. I mean, Peter Thiel just says, you know, he's not for democracy. Um, and that is just weird. It's weird, like, only in America could I amass this, you know, become a billionaire. Could I become an oligarch? And, and one of the things I say in this book is, and I make this case, and I would, I would defend this in front of the Oxford Union, that American oligarchs have more power than the Russian oligarchs. Right. You know, how many Russian oligarchs did Trump did Putin go to and ask permission to invade Ukraine? None. They knew if you disagree with him, he'd just kill him. So here, you can be a Zuckerberg, and there's a good case that if Peter Thiel hadn't convinced Zuckerberg to change their policy at Facebook in an infamous meeting they had in the spring of 16, that Trump wouldn't have been elected. 
And Facebook placed people in the Trump campaign. Now, they also offered to place them in the Clinton campaign, and Clinton said no, should have said yes. Um, you have Peter Thiel, that's basically thinks the Republican Party is just insanely too moderate. So, he, you know, invents, he invents, you know, he goes against Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, these two freaks, and funds them to run. And the difference is, you know, you take J.D. Vance. So if J.D. Vance, if a Democratic candidate went out and said the stuff J.D. Vance said, if he was a Democratic nominee, the Democratic Party would not support that. Correct. So when J.D. Vance goes out and says, women who are in abusive marriages really need to stay in those marriages because the Democratic Party would say, no, yeah. we can't do this. It's the same thing, you know, you say, what would have happened if John Kerry, after the 2004 election day, if he had refused to concede? Right. All these newspapers who endorsed him, they would have taken his hat off. Yeah. They wouldn't have responded the way Fox responded. Right. And, and the party, it would have ended as any career. These Democratic senators would have said, you're insane. You lost. This is pathetic. Give it up. And that didn't happen in the Republican Party. Um, so, you know, I, I, I so, so look at, look at our friend Ron DeSantis. So all these donors backed Ron DeSantis a year ago or more, because they saw him in the model of a big state governor, like Reagan, Bush, even Romney, who won the nomination. But DeSantis didn't like that. Yeah. You know, he's a mean little guy who wants to use the power of the state to interfere with free enterprise, got in the fight with the happiness company. <laughs> the happiness, I mean, if you and I were writing like a sketch, you go, well, he's going to get in a fight with Disney or Florida government. You go, no, dude, but you right. say to me, Stuart, that's absurd. Right. This has got to have some basis in reality. We can't right. write this. Right. But it shows how delusional they are. For those of us who had ever known, ever seen anything, we knew he was this unlikable, anti-charisma thug. But this is what happens. They talk themselves into something. They put all their yes. money as if he's going to solve their problem rather than them rediscovering democracy. And lo and behold, they've sunk a shitload of money into this complete loser, and now they're nowhere. And look look at Glenn Youngkin, okay? There's a time yeah. in my life, not that long ago, when Glenn Youngkin, I would have thought, this is a great client. Yeah. You know, he seems like a you know, smart guy. He's got a lot of money. Seems sane. So he runs this whole critical race theory, which is campaign, which is basically race, racist at its definition. Yes. You know, goes and attacks Margaret Walker, you know, where sends his kids to Georgetown Prep, where they have seminars on her, as they should. <laughs> he doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Um, so what happens? So he gets elected, and he ends up out in Arizona campaigning for Carrie Lake. Yeah. Not just I a bunny Carrie Lake who, you know, still wakes up every day and thinks that Donald Trump is president. So right. Glenn Youngkin didn't change Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake changed Glenn Youngkin. Exactly. And that, that's what's happened. You know, how did my old friend, client, guy I, I just loved, Rob Portman, end up endorsing mm. Trump and J.D. Vance? And I think Portman was the saddest of them all. In some ways, I hold him more raw, 
morally responsible than the others because he knew better. This was a guy who was head of OMB, he was the trade rep. He was the definition of a thoughtful, sane Republican. And when he just kind of threw up his hands and said, eh, what do you want me to do? I said to myself, okay, there is no resistance. There is no, you know, barrier between the Republican Party and this guy. It it was so sad to me. It was so pathetic. It's even hard for me to talk about without getting emotional. I mean, it's just, it's like, you know, I worked in all of Chris Christie's races, you know, sat there and his U.S. attorney, you know, with my partner, you know, talking to him about running for governor. And I would have bet anything that Chris Christie would never endorse Donald Trump. And I can remember I was standing in an airport. Right. And he came out and he endorsed Trump. And he was the first of those candidates in the primary. And, and literally tears came to my yeah. eyes. I felt like I was watching a friend overdose. Yeah. I, I, I just, yeah. I, I, it was so sad to me. And, you know, now he's saying what he believed, what he should have said. But it's like, Chris, I mean, you know, you were for him in 2020. I mean, he tried to kill you in debate prep right? with COVID. You know, he didn't try to kill Pence until January 7th. But yeah, he tried exactly. to kill you. Um, right. I, I just, had Nikki Haley stayed true, I mean, what she said when she endorsed Rubio before the South Carolina primary Donald Trump is everything I wouldn't want my kindergarten, you know, not to be. She believed that. And yet, you know, she gave up. There's an incredible moment in McKay Coffin's book. Yeah. Where Paul Ryan gets word that Mitt Romney's going to vote in the first impeachment trial to convict. And he reaches out to Mitt, not to say, look, man, you know, I can't tell you I would do this, but. I'll always support you. I'm proud of you for doing what you believe. Uh, I'll always have your back. No. He says, you really thought about this because this is going to be really bad for you in the party. And he's going to, it's not going to win. And mm. you don't really want to do this. It's just so, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's, you know, I can. It's so pathetic. I mean, it's you can make so a case, weak. you know, Paul's uh, trying to do it because everything he predicted was true. It would become a pariah. Um, but to what right. end? Mitt wasn't going to run for president again. Well, Mitt, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. It's fishy France. It is people who think that the way to survive and the way to get ahead is simply to collaborate. Now, after World War II, everyone was in the French resistance. But, you know, Vichy was Vichy because it is always easier to accommodate. shift the conversation a little bit. Other than beating the pants off these people time and time and time again, is there any other way to bring back the Republican Party or to remake the party? How do they get out of this? And by the way, I tell my Democratic friends, you can't win every election. So you better hope that the Republican Party 
becomes a normal party again. Yeah. It can't be every election we're at risk of destroying it's, it's our a, democracy. It's a fantastic question, and I don't have a good answer. I don't. I mean, I, I would have hoped, would have bet, there would be some line that could be crossed. So, okay, so January 5th, Miss 2021, Miss McConnell wakes up, he's majority leader. January uh, 7th, he, he, he wakes up, he's running for his life, and he's minority leader. So let's just think about if somebody in your own party, organizes, or just anybody, you know, organizes a mob to come into your workplace and try to kill you and your colleagues, and you don't vote to convict that person. What line are they going to cross? We go, okay, well, there was this thing about foreign policy. That was really too much. Okay, they try, I know you tried to kill me. <laughs> but yeah. once, you, once you're okay with that, right? what do you do? Right, no. there's no, I mean, so there's no down. There, there's even no though there's no wife, Even though he tries to kill his, you know, inspires a riot, there are people trying to kill your colleagues. It still, he is afraid to say his name. Right. And people are, remain amazed. Like, well, he's been indicted four times. They don't care. He's been, you know, there's going to take away his businesses because he's really a fraud. Oh, they're going to care? Of course not. So there is no persuasion. And what I try to get people to understand is there are persuadables, but these people no. are not. You got to get everybody else who's a persuadable, everybody else who's a possible ally and get them on the same side, which by the way, is one of the reasons this no labels thing is an absolute menace because it'll no suck labels. up some of these no labels that does you need saying to vote for the only Bible. Donald Trump. There's just no, there's no two ways about this. Exactly. Exactly. It's just so clear. Which is why all their money is coming from big Republican donors, by the way, because they know exactly what they're doing. Talk about, by the way, your awareness that democracy will never work. They don't think Trump can win this on his own. It's only by further subdividing the vote to make him an even more minority president to get it so that he could possibly win with 45% of the vote. Do I hear 44? Do I hear 43? So there's no... Um, appeal to democracy. So let me posit something. Let's say for sake of argument. I like this. Keep going. We get very lucky. Biden wins maybe a little bit more comfortably than he did last time. There, Yeah, I know. This is my fantasy. Uh, the Republicans barely hold the sentence. Very tough map, as you and I know. And they reclaim the House. What should Democrats do structurally, legally, politically to try to solidify democracy when they have the chance? They didn't do this, by the way, for the first two years, which I think was a terrible mistake. What should they do if they are so fortunate, we are so fortunate to limp through this next election that could possibly yeah. insulate you know, us from... This isn't my idea. Um, Anti-democracy. But I like the idea of uh, having some cabinet-level position that is basically to defend democracy. Um, right. You know, why do we have a, a, you know, we used to have a Department of War, now we have a Department of Defense. Why not have this? There never was an education right. department until, you know, Jimmy Carter. One out of two Carter delegates for teachers. Teachers are smart. What do you, what do you, what do you want? They go, we want a department. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's like none of this small stuff. Yes. Um, 
So I think they ought to do that. And look, I just think it's really, you know, the problem with the unimaginable is it's hard to imagine. And, you know, I think that what exactly big question in 2022 was, could you make democracy an issue? And a lot of people said, you know, it's going to be about inflation. It's going to be about gas prices, you know, grocery prices. You know, the one thing I know about politics, I've done all these campaigns, if you want people to care about an issue, you have to care about it. Now, that doesn't mean they will care about it. But if right. you don't, you're definitely not going to carry the day. And I think that, that Biden went out and put democracy on the ballot. He did. He did. He was ridiculed for it, but he did it. And I think you have to do it in, in 24. Um, I think that you you have to make it about the legacy of democracy. And this is the thing that makes me the most angry about my Republican friends and some of these people I help elect, right? They, they are the legacy of the greatest generation. I mean, people like my dad fought three years in the South Pacific, 28 island landings, came back, never talked about it, built a life like hundreds of thousands of others. So here are these Republicans post-2020. All they have to do is get their comm shop to put out a statement congratulating the president-elect of the United States. Not a particularly difficult thing to do. Yeah, and they can't do it that. might not be your most favorite moment in life. Yeah, they can't do that. It is democracy, and they can't, get, they can't do that. I mean, it's, it's just a, a complete collapse. And the, the problem is, I mean, you, you write about this brilliantly. It is, so in their world, if you live in a world in which you believe that Donald Trump really won the election, everything else starts to make sense. It's like crop circles. Once you understand crop circles, everything, then, ah, I get it, I get it. So I just get inside there. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows Donald yeah. Trump won the thing. I mean, it's obvious. You couldn't elect Joe Biden, couldn't even get a thousand people at a rally. How could he get elected president? Um, and the only way they could stop Trump from being reelected was to steal it. We know that. Now the only way that they can stop Trump from getting reelected, which he really should be, you know, reinstall the president, is put him in jail. So when they indict him, all this stuff, of course you have to be for Trump because otherwise you're going along with the deep state and you're allowing the subversion of democracy. So when you see these polls that show that Republicans are more concerned about democracy than Democrats, that's because Republicans think that, you know, they live in an occupied country. Yes, Oh. Right. By the way, that is why I think the democracy message needs to be tweaked a little bit for exactly that reason. Republicans think they're on the side of democracy, you know, and my strong suspicion is 2021 was not just about democracy, but about chaos, about extremism. Could not. I think that is exactly right. And that if Democrats are smart in 2024, they're going to run on do you want to have these fucking crazy lunatics running your life? Or do you want to have a guy who's, yeah, he's older, but he's experienced. You know, you don't like everything he's done, but you live in a sane universe. And that, I think, is as important to the average person who doesn't think about democracy, who's not, you know, watching cable news all day long. I, look, as Jen, anything I could else. not. I mean, look, one of the things that we used to say that was a value to the Republican Party was we were the adults in the room. Yeah. Uh, there was competence. And one of the great 
benefits of living in a civil democracy is not to having to think about the government. Exactly. <laughs> what mood, you don't want to wake up and think, what mood's the president in today, right? I mean, that's, you know, that that's the definition of an autocracy, you know? What right. mood is EDM in, in today? You know? Like, um, and it was like that with Trump. He was always in your face. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to think about this stuff. You ought to be able to focus on your life. You ought to be wondering about, like, who's going to win the Friday night football game your high school. Not like, you know, is, is, is Donald Trump saying something lunatic today? Um, and I think that, you know, why did Biden win? It's a classic case, I think, like Churchill, where, you know, all of these things that were his negatives became positives. You know, he was this bellicose guy, you know, same with Margaret Thatcher. She was a shrill backbencher, but all of a sudden this is what the country needed. So she became you know, the Iron Lady. Well, you know, Biden's problems have been he was he was boring. That became uh, stable. He was someone who'd been in office since he was 12. That became experience. That was a positive. Um, he was not a terrifically charismatic candidate, but that became something that was refreshing because it was a sign of just sort of mature leadership. And I think they really, and look, what better example could you have than the speaker fight? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're going to really, you know, the people that can't even pick their own <laughs> speaker to right. run the country. I mean, you know, I, I end up with this guy from Louisiana. I mean, you know, um, and ultimately these people are not very likable. They're weird people. They really are. And I think um, running against weirdness, extremism, yes. violence, wackadoodle, you know, behavior and wackadoodle beliefs, you know, most Americans, contrary to the way it's portrayed in the media, are not nuts. You know, they're kind I, of, I, you know. If I ran the Democratic Party, I would wake up every morning trying to get in a culture war because they're running yeah. those culture wars. Exactly. Like who won Nike versus, you know, Trump? Nike made $9 billion off of Colin Kaepernick. Who's <laughs> <Right. laughs> winning the, the, the happiness company versus DeSantis? Right. Um, you right. know, I'm going to bet on the happiness company, you know? Um, well, on that note, betting on the happiness company, um, our time is up, but Stuart, you've been great. Uh, everyone should go read your book, um, The Conspiracy to End America, and also your travel books, if you're like me, you're a travel nut. Um, those are delightful. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining The Good Fight. And we hope to have you back soon. Thank, thanks so much, Jenna. Thanks for everything you've been doing and do. And that was Stuart Stevens. He did not disappoint. It's interesting that Stuart and I because we come from a different perspective, in some ways, I think, have some insight that Democrats could use in this fight to preserve democracy. One of them is you go to war with the general you have. And in this case, Joe Biden's a pretty good general. And this gashrying about trying to find someone younger or replace Kamala Harris is dumb. It's counterproductive. It's fantasy football time. Stop it. It's not helping. You can win and you better win with the guy you've got. 
which is Joe Biden. Second point, if they do get power, they got to use it. Republicans are not shy about using power once they're in. If Democrats are so fortunate to get the White House and both houses of Congress, they need to make some major structural changes. I'm talking about making Washington, D.C. a state so they get two more senators. I'm talking about really cutting back on the filibuster. I'm talking about working towards term limits for Supreme Court justices. You got to use the power you have when you have it if democracy is at stake, because Republicans are not shy about changing the rules of the game. Look what they did to stock the Supreme Court. First, you couldn't replace Anton Scalia, and then you had to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What was that all about? That's just changing the rules because you can, because you have the power. And Democrats really have to be unabashed about using power, changing the game so that democracy can flourish, so that democracy has some insulation against these other forces. Third point, Democrats need to understand you don't have to agree on everything and you don't take your ball and go home. The left right now is roiled over the Israel issue. There is apparently, to my absolute horror, a somewhat pro-Hamas, very uh, anti-Semitic element on the left. That's bad. Those people are saying things that are unacceptable, that are really uh, un-American. Caveat. Because they are mad at other parts of the Democratic Party does not mean that one or both of those sides can go take their ball and go home in 2024. Everybody needs to get on the side of democracy because if they think they don't like Joe Biden because he's not solicitous enough of the Palestinians or he's not solicitous enough of uh, the African-American very legitimate agenda, they're really not going to like Donald Trump in the second term who goes about imprisoning his political enemies, who goes about giving Ukraine to the Russians. So proportion, understand some things are better than other things, that choices are not perfect. But as Joe Biden says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And he's exactly right. And the other thing I would say is, despite the news coverage, Joe Biden has been a very, very good president. Look at the economy. 4.9% growth in the third quarter, that's unheard of. Look at the jobs numbers. Look at inflation coming down. Look at the unity of NATO and the expansion of NATO. Look at the strides we're making in converting to clean energy. Look at, quite frankly, the gains for lower income, middle income people. Look at the gains that organized labor has made. Look at the gains that seniors have made in reduced prescription drug prices. You can go down the list. The Democrats make an effort to make life better for people. They don't always get it right. They don't always win. They may overstep or understep. 
but they are trying to help people. They are not in the business of stirring anger, hatred, violence. These two parties are not the same. And Democrats should be unabashedly enthusiastic about the administration and its achievements. Doesn't mean there aren't things that need to be done. Doesn't mean there aren't problems with the border. Doesn't mean there aren't problems with poverty. Doesn't mean there aren't problems with education. But are we moving in the right direction? And would we go radically backward to a dystopia that I can't even imagine? If you thought the first term was bad, imagine him getting back into power and seeking vengeance on his enemies. He's already promised that. He's their retribution, he said. Who wants that? So I think one of the takeaways from Stewart is that the Republican Party right now is very, very dangerous. You've had a party that has decided democracy is in the way, that racial tension and racial hatred is an asset in turning out their vote, and they have to lose. If we want to maintain a pluralistic democracy, these people have to lose. There's no two bones about it. So... Thank you for joining us. If you like this program, please listen and please tell your friends. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye. 